Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session. My guest today is Ron Carucci. Ron led a 10-year longitudinal study on executive transition to find out why more than 50% of leaders fail within their first 18 months of appointment and uncovering the four differentiating capabilities that set successful leaders apart. Those findings are highlighted in his book, Rising to Power. Harvard Business Review selected his research as one of 2016's ideas that mattered most. He's a two-time TEDx speaker, and his most recent TED Talk on power will be in the show notes for this episode. Or you can just go to jordanparis.com and hit the search button on the top right and look up Ron Carucci and you will find everything there. Ron is also the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. In addition to being a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. He has been featured in Fortune, Business Insider, MSNBC, and Inc. Magazine. And here he is today, Ron Carucci. He's here. Welcome. Hey, hey Jordan Perez. <laughs> Man, I'm so excited. One of the reasons I was so excited is that you are prolific, Ron, in the sense I'm just going through the sheer number of articles that you've written for Forbes over a span of Many years, three, <laughs> three. Okay, right. Just on such a, a, a relentlessly consistent basis. I mean, what does it take to like? What do you do when you sit down and write? What's the creative process like? Do you just say, "All right, it's time. Uh, it's about time I write that article again," or what? Or <laughs> what is that like? <laughs> oh, it's such a. You had to start with the hard question, didn't you, Jordan? Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's dive right to the pain for your guests. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So lots of caffeine is really important. Um, you know, so it's interesting that when I first started this journey three and a half years ago, with a, I, I hired a coach, right? So I got help with this because I didn't know I didn't know how to do any of this. Um, you, it, 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 there's no question; it takes a ton of discipline. You have to be committed. You have to want to do it. You have to believe in your ideas and have to want to share them. And you have to. This has to be a means to an end. If you just want to be a published writer, don't do it. But if if there's something about your ideas you want to share, you have to have conviction enough in them to get yourself up on a Sunday morning at six thirty, um, to to get your content out there. You have to, and you have to be efficient in how you repurpose content, right? So, you know, when I develop some concepts for in 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 long form. You know, I try and find other, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or my own blog on, at Navalin.com or Forbes or pieces and ideas for my HBR pieces. You know, I try and make sure that I'm trying to leverage concepts or leverage research that I do so that I'm not just, you know, starting from scratch every time. And the Forbes blog, um, my column there is interesting because I use that for networking, right? So I get to meet really interesting people and I, I try and make at least half of, or more of my pieces interviews with really interesting people doing interesting work out there. It expands my network. It introduces me to people I never would have met before who are writing and doing really fascinating and impactful things in the world. Um, so that's part of how that stays political because I, you just get the interview and um, you write the essay from that. I, I am definitely not one of those people. Uh, I don't have a, a lot of respect for people who do interviews and then just transcribe it, you know, mm. Ron, guest, Ron, because then that's just, I can do that with a software program. And so I try. There's no and, no creative. Yeah, and so I try and uh, very much mine some insights for my readers from the interview. Certainly want to feature the voice of the guest, but I want to my I want I want to control the insights that are being um, curated there. But it's still but it's a lot of fun for me because I get to get inside the heads of some great people, and the lives and hearts of some great people. Um, HBR is a whole different world. Um, 
and writing for them is a just a different animal. Uh, but I, ultimately, I you know I'm uh, I don't know if I say I would I enjoy it. I, that would be a lie. Um, it's not I don't it's I don't suffer. It's not it's not I don't, it's not agonizing for me because I I've written a lot so I know what to do. Um, I, I run a writing studio here in Seattle for first time authors to help them. Um, not learn how to write, but how to build their books or how to build their, you know, what, what, how do you get writing strategies in place? How do you get a writing process in place? How do you build a discipline? Uh, and I know that there are some people who just, it's torture for them to sit in front of a blank white screen uh, and try and figure out how to, you know, fill it with something that people don't go over. Certainly. Well, what has been some of the fi- your favorite things that you have written about thus far? Uh, that's a fun question. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that I've managed to assemble a body of work in this area, but my newest research is on honesty uh, and integrity. And if I look back over the years in my Forbes columns, I've written about 15 different articles on various forms of ethic and lying and honesty and corruption. And I interviewed an ex-felon who went to jail for a crime. I got to, so I've met some amazing people doing some rich work and important work in the field of honesty uh, and integrity and ethics. But my own research, I wasn't, this was a big surprise to me when, when our researchers came back with the data and we started mining it for thoughts. I wasn't looking for correlations that could predict um, the degree to which people and organizations would lie or withhold the truth. But discovering them has been really uh, humbling and scary that there are, in fact, ways to predict whether or not people inside a company will lie or withhold the truth, not just about individual character, not just about are they a sociopath or are they self-interested, but there are forces in an organization. It's not just the one I'm getting so tired of hearing about, Jordan, is it's the culture. Hmm. Well, we can we can blame a lot of things on the culture, just like we can blame a lot of things on, oh, they're bad communicators. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to dig deeper and understand more about what are those forces, and we indeed found very clear predictors uh, of that. And so it's become a new, a new, a new heartbeat passion for me around, you know, moments of truth telling. What are some of the, what are some of the forces? So uh, strategic clarity. When we don't know who we are, we make, we make stuff up. Uh, So if you walk around your organization and you say, what's our strategy? You're going to get 10 different answers. If you have a value statement and people look at it and roll their eyes because the people running and leading the organization do not embody those values. If what you tell your customers about who you are and how you tend to serve them is different than how you actually behave inside, if your customer service folks in your call centers are looking at a poster that says, uh, you know, our customers are everything and it's a privilege to serve them. And they're looking at a script that says, do not escalate concerns, get them off the phone quickly. Uh, That level of hypocrisy creates duplicity. And if you have that level of strategic lack of clarity about who you are and what you do, you are three times more likely to have people lie or withhold the truth. Ooh. Wow. And that's just one. Uh, another one, cross-functional rivalries, silos. If you have border wars between your classic sales and marketing, supply chain and logistics, finance and R&D, HR and everybody, uh, if those conflicts remain unresolved, you are six times more likely to have people lie or withhold the truth because when we fragment the organization, we create dueling truths. And if we have dueling truths, it means mine has to be right and yours has to be wrong. So uh, anyway, those are just two of the two of them. And it's been astounding to go to go bear those out and, and begin to um, present the research at, uh, at conferences and such. And uh, people are resonating. People are, are really are, are thinking, wow, that's my company. Um, and so, uh, uh, I, so this is a new journey for me. Don't know where it's going to go, but I do know in, for such a time as this, as we, if we look around, we don't have to look too far to see how scarce the truth is. Um, and it's painful. Uh, I think we've gotten very dangerously confused by the notion of speak your truth with speak the truth. Uh, and, and, they're not this, and they're not the same thing. And we've convinced people that they are. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, would you say, I mean, we talk about clarity, 
and as it pertains to a company's mission and the employees inside it. But would you say people who are unsure of themselves and what they are doing and what they stand for, they that that is conducive to lying as well? Does it extend Absolutely. that way? It's a p- p- purpose was one of the key findings in the, in the study, Jordan. It's a great question. So when I can't locate my own sense of purpose, or if I haven't discovered it, but if I don't know what it is and I can't locate it in the in, in the organization's purpose, it just intensifies my duplicity. Now I have to collude with your dishonesty. And when I have to hide myself or I have to hide that I don't know who I am, I'm more likely to lie. Because now I got now I gotta make I have my all all about the illusion of convincing you that I I belong here when I even I know I don't. Um so it is intensified by somebody's lack of sense of purpose or lack of a sense of their own identity. Mm. Right. Okay, that's what I thought. So you're really a workplace expert. I mean, I would certainly consider you that. What drew you to such a, 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 a an area, such a, why, why have you sought out such expertise in this area over the past few decades? Yeah. You know, I, it, funny, Jordan, since I was little, I have always had this natural fascination of or human, what human endeavor could do at scale. If there was going to be a fundraiser in the neighborhood, I was the kid that organized it. If there was a stickball game to get together, I got the players and I got the sticks and the balls. If there was a a, a, a big event at school, I, w- I wanted to sort of air traffic control it. I just loved what, and it was more than just teamwork. It was really about the fact that people could come together and contribute a lot of different things and make something amazing happen. Uh, and so I, it's always been a natural fascination for me. The dysfunction that often emerges as a result of people trying to organize at scale. I don't know that I love that part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what certainly keeps me employed. But um, but once you can set aside some of that dysfunction and set aside some of what gets in the way of humans coming together, you know, it's so funny to me how many people say the words, I want to feel something part of something bigger than myself. And yet they all want to be entrepreneurs and work by themselves. So, I, you know, I'm always interested in asking solopreneurs, how are you going to be part of something by your, bigger than yourself by yourself? And I get that many people are running from companies. They're running from the workplace. They think it's the employer of last resort. I'm going to be a cog on a wheel. I'm going to work for the man. I don't want to do that. I'm going to be hidden in a cubicle, uh, on a cubicle farm. Uh, and I get why all those things are unattractive and why you wouldn't, you shouldn't do it. But not all companies right. are like that. Mm. Uh, and not all of us are meant to be solopreneurs. That's a whole other, you know, DNA. And so I, my, my part of my hope in the world is to figure out how to help organizations be better, better versions of themselves and make it places where people can thrive and people can bring their best selves and their talents and uh, contribute in ways that make them proud. Uh, it, it actually is possible. It takes work, but it's possible. So I will tell you that from age 16 to 18 and a half, I worked at this restaurant and I, you know, I wasn't quite in a cubicle, of course. I mean, I was running around and I started as a busser, got promoted to server by the end of it, and then flamed out. And by the end of it, I said, never again, never, meaning never again will I work for someone ever again. And, and uh, you know, I haven't looked back ever since, and I'm, and I'm extremely glad. But at the same time, I see what you're saying. People are very scared of it, like I was, and and but it's not necessarily representative of all organizations, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, how would you go about when, I mean, when you're looking for a job, preparing for in, you know, an interview, I mean, how can you spot, okay, this is the kind of organization I want to work for. This is the kind of organization that I'm going to be happy and fulfilled working for. Yeah. Because unfortunately, not all of them are, well, you will be, but some of them you will. Exactly. And so I would tell your listeners and and your peers who are out, remember, you are not just interviewing for a job, you're hiring your next boss. And you are interviewing mm. you are interviewing them to put them in the position of developing you and and leading you. So hire people who are worthy of that job, um, and ask hard questions. Um, how well? How often do you guys give feedback to people? You know, most people uh, in senior level jobs fear your generation asking, "When do I get promoted?" So be t- temper the self interest kinds of questions, but certainly ask questions about um, how do people get fired here. Uh, wh- how, 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 how do people offer um, radical ideas? How, how well, how welcome is disagreement here? What happens when you push back on somebody? Um, how, how are expectations set for work hours? Ask the hard questions about how the place is run. How, how much of a voice will I have in decision making? How are decisions made? How transparent are you with information? 
uh, ask the questions that that sort of align to your own values, but make them squirm a little bit um, because don't hire just because you're maybe earlier in your career doesn't mean you have to take any job you're offered. Uh, and if you're not earlier in your career, all the more reason for you to be picky. Um, because if you if you hire someone to be a crappy boss, um, you're just marking time in your career, and you're not. I mean, sure, you'll learn a lot about perseverance, uh, but you know maybe you don't necessarily want to spend years doing that. So go out interview interview companies, um, and then and and then when you hear colleagues or peers or friends who are thrilled in their job, go visit, go on a field trip, go and watch how things look. Get a get a good look at go on Glassdoor, read the reviews, find the the companies that are getting the best reviews, and go go network with somebody. Say, hey, can I have lunch, take you to coffee, and uh, learn about what you do, just to hear what it's like to work at a company like yours. And even the great ones aren't perfect, but there has to be you you have to have a minimum threshold. There has to be a, a tolerance level which you won't go below in terms of what kind of crappy boss you'll put up with or what kind of toxic culture um, you want to be in. When you go to an interview, you've got to be the interviewer because you are, you're, I mean, you're, you're giving away. I mean, not necessarily giving, I mean, you're getting in return, you're getting plenty, you're being compensated in return, but you're going to be spending a large portion of your time there. So you really should do the due diligence yep. and uh, be and interview them. That's really important. But let's say Absolutely. someone doesn't, someone doesn't want to go that route and maybe they want to go from go and, and, and try their hand at business starting a business and maybe in the beginning like most are they're a solopreneur but what are some of the trip ups that happen there when launching a business that prevent you from going from solopreneur to full-scale agency or business and now yeah as a solopreneur you're stuck in a rat race yep so uh there's a number of pitfalls that i see come first of all just having a great idea doesn't mean you're ready to turn into a business right so you have to make sure you've tested your idea gotten proof of concept gotten uh gotten confirmation that it's commercializable right so that you you can monetize the idea maybe a great idea that people won't pay for so make sure you've proven that there's a monetizable idea you can commercialize. But after that, even for solopreneurs, you're not really a solopreneur. You have a team. You have somebody doing your website. You have somebody scheduling your travel for you. You have somebody doing your printing and production. There, there are people out there, and they may be vendors, or they may be other companies, or maybe other solopreneurs, but they're still your team, and you need to treat them like your organization uh, so that you remember that you're not isolated and alone. But the second thing is, um, <clears throat> most individual, individuals or small business think that the work of strategy is not for them, that that's for big companies, and they could not be more wrong. If you don't, and I don't mean have a mission, vision and value statement, <laughs> but I mean be very clear on who's going to pay for your idea and why, and why would they pick you over somebody else? If you don't understand what differentiates you, what price point you can command, and what sets you apart from the gazillions of other people who do what you're going to do, you can't compete. And so if you've not kind of got a clear swim lane to be in, an articulated swim lane about here's why I do this, here's why you pay this price for it, here's why it's better than other people who do the same thing, and why you should pick me. If you can't say those things, and then put your money where your mouth is and show the capabilities that you have to be good at uh, and that you've invested in those capabilities sufficiently to you know, keep the promises you've made. That's really important strategy work, and most solopreneurs don't even give it a thought. Mm -hmm. uh, and and or entrepreneurs who got, are just getting angel funding and there's eight people in their garage, they're just thinking about getting proof of concept, getting maybe to some Series A funding or getting minimum viable product out the door, but they're not thinking about the scaling part of work. And even as a solopreneur, you have to step out of working in your organization and in your job to have time to work on your job and to work on your business. And it's two different types of work. And if you're not willing to spend the time to work on your business, uh, you're not going to work in it for very long. So fill in the blank. The number one key to scaling is? Clear, stra clear strategy, organize the work, lead it well. Love it. One answer, three parts. And the organizing the work part becomes really, really confusing when you start adding employees because you start just getting bodies in the door. And you, it's mostly just, I don't want get this off my plate. Right. So you're what, what you're then scaling is yourself. You're not scaling the business. Uh, and those are also different things. But what what is very painful for most entrepreneurs to accept is that not all work is created equal. 
if you've articulated two or three differentiators that set you apart, there's a certain set of activities that deliver that value. That's the work that if you invest a dollar in that, in that work, five dollars comes in the door. It's about 15, 20% of your work. There's another set of activities that are enabling. They support that, your technology or your website or your marketing or whatever it is that directly gets people to that value. Another 15, 20% of your work. About 60% of the work you do is just necessary. Keeps the lights on, keeps you out of jail. You don't have to be better out than anybody else. You should do that with maximum efficiency and the least amount of cost. But you're enabling in your competitive work. Spend the money there on talent, technology, at your best work. But here's the trick, Jordan. People mix them up, right? So if any given part of your day, you look at your calendar and you spent not 80% of your time on the necessary work and only 10% of the time on the competitive work, because the necessary work is what sets your hair on fire, um, you're, you're cannibalizing your own business. You have got to protect the work and the activities that are competitive and enabling uh, and get the necessary work done by somebody else as cheaply and efficiently as possible and keep them separated because the minute they start mixing themselves up, the competitive work suffers. And that's the hardest part of the mitosis of an organization, right? When the cells divide and the work divides and starts spreading, the mitosis looks all the same to a solopreneur. An entrepreneur, and they've got to begin to distinguish what are the high value added activities that really advance the cause here, and what are the what's the crap that just needs to be done by somebody else. Certainly, that's so important. It's it's almost like, I mean, it's something that I'm I'm going through right now as I begin to grow and and as I begin to outsource a lot of things. But uh, that's another conversation. So I want to talk about your study on leaders. What is the deal here? Because is <laughs> when because when people rise to power, fifty percent, you know, and they're appointed to a new position, fifty percent of them fail. What constitutes as a failure, though? First, not in that job, not by their own choice. Mm. Not in that job, not by their own choice. So pretty much, okay, yeah, pretty much so, they're fired. I mean, yeah. Fired, got laid off, got marginalized, got got to give it a different job, but. No longer in the job, not by their own choice. Um, the second worst cause of that would be they're still in the job and no one cares. They're not doing anything. <laughs> so is it a quick? Is it a quick downfall? So I'll tell you. There's two that are quick and two that are slow deaths. Um, so uh, and what's really what's so sad, Jordan, was it's how preventable these failures are. You know, this is the carnage of people's careers that has gone on for decades, and we've just let, let it be okay. You know, recruiters think it's awesome because it's an annuity for them. But but we've just allowed it to be just normal. Which roll your dice, you got a 50-50 shot of this guy or this woman working out or not. And it's horrible. Uh, and we can do better. We can absolutely do better. Uh, but but the a number of landmines we put in the way of people on the way up is just astounding. Uh, and it, it began in a very personal way for me. You know, I, we were working with a company. We'd done a, a major transformational project with them. And at the end of it, one of the young leaders who had obviously distinguished himself and everybody presumed to be high potential and having a mediocre rise as a career was given the chance to take on a bigger job. Nobody was shocked. Off he goes and people cheering him on. Nine months later, I see him in my caller ID and I'm excited thinking, oh, he's calling to check in. Going to hear about all the great things he's done. Call me to tell me he'd been fired. And I was shocked. And two hours later, the CEO called to tell me he'd been fired. And more than settling inferring that some of the failure was mine for not having better prepared him, which of course was devastating to hear. And so I, I said, I said, I, I, how could we have so badly misjudged uh, his his potential? Can can I come in and sniff around here? Can I? Because something's going on here. And if I contributed to this, I want to know what I did. And that little investigation is what led to our ten year study uh, with twenty seven hundred leaders in our interview pool. Because I. The, and, and it was just astounding to find out that forget about how many landmines are in the way of these leaders on their site. It's how many the organizations put there uh, that trip them up. Just ho horrific. Here's an example uh, to go back to your point about interviewing people interviewing. If you hear people asking you questions like this, run. Um, oh my gosh, look at these great apps you built in your last job. That's what we need here. Or wow, you've had such a great track record as a salesperson leading salespeople. Just what we need here. Or, oh my gosh, you've turned around these bad situations before. That's what we need help with. If you start hearing the inference that there's a you have past successes that they want repeated here, get out. Because oh. you're being set up to fail. And it feels so good to hear it. Oh, they really want me. Nope. What they're saying to you is, 
you have a recipe. You got a formula, and we want you to bring that formula here. So you're going to walk in, and you're going to ignore the context because you think you've been given a mandate to slap that recipe on this context uh, and repeat that past success, which is not possible to do. So, of course, the harder you slap, the more the organization resists, you slap even harder. Then your diagnosis becomes an indictment, and, and you start saying things like, you didn't tell me it was this bad, or, wow, how have you people made any money? And you start judging the environment, who then starts resisting you altogether, and they begin to back away, and that's the seeds of failure at play. We've all seen the movie a hundred times. So be very thoughtful and mindful about how it is you're going to leverage wisdom from your past successes. Certainly there's learning there and from your failures too, without thinking you can repeat them. Because if you don't read the context uh, around you and recognize that you have as much to adapt in you as you have to change in them, you will fail. And context was the first finding in the study. These leaders that succeeded were contextually intelligent. They were curious. They asked hard questions. They learned before they acted. They, they scanned the landscape. They looked at the industry. They, they looked at the trends. They guessed what was happening. They understood the customers. Uh, and then they adapted their ideas on how they wanted to lead. They learned first. They hit the ground learning, not hit the ground running. Uh, second finding was breadth. Uh, these leaders understood that organizations naturally fragment. They, they come in pieces. And, and, and they are dying for cohesion. And these leaders understood that it was their job to bring that cohesion, to stitch the seams of the organization. This was called breadth. And they could see how the pieces fit together. They understood that uh, when these pieces joined forces, better performance happened. So they learned to build bridges across the divides rather than make the divides worse. So if they grew up in finance, they knew they couldn't just see the world through economics anymore. Or if they grew up in marketing, they just couldn't see the world through consumers anymore. They had to see the world more holistically. Um, third was choice. These leaders can make hard calls. So, so, so many, one of the, um, you, you graciously mentioned the power TED talk, uh, before one of the most astounding findings in the study was in fact that, um, the greatest abuse of power was not self-interest. It was abandonment of it. People too afraid to use their power. So they, so they set it aside, just made all kinds of promises, wanted to please everybody, doled out way too many yeses to requests and to ideas and diluted the, the organization's focus and made mediocre the, the standard. These leaders, by contrast, knew how to say no. They were not afraid to disappoint people. They knew that leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. That's what, it, that's what it is. They would narrow the focus of the organization so that you could win. And even great ideas, they could say no to. And the last one uh, was connection. These leaders built phenomenal relationships of trust and authenticity with bosses, peers, and direct reports. But the interesting thing was to, to see in this group, Jordan, was how they prioritized those relationships. They didn't prioritize them by those they could get something from. They prioritized them by those they could contribute something to. They spent more time with people who they could make successful rather than the people they could who could make them successful. Uh, and people knew. They, every company has them, right? These are the bosses everybody wants to work for, the leaders you know your careers are going to grow with, the ones you know you can trust. Uh, it's those people. Um, the hardest part about the findings, Jordan, was that the, to be in the success group, you had to be good at all four. Oh. So, so, I, so my research team did 99 different regression analyses because I kept going back saying, try again, try again, because I didn't want to have to say it's four out. And they finally said, Ron, it's not going to change. This is, this is it. And so, you know, even the really what seemed like solid leaders had three of the four, they were in the failure group. So the great news is they're learnable. You can learn these things from the earliest parts of your career. Your peer group can start learning these things now. Do not wait till you get your first bigger job to start working on this stuff because it's too late. Uh, but you can start learning to read context. You can start building bridges across borders in organizations. You can start learning how to make hard decisions and how, how your apparatus for data and intuition and uh, consensus work together to make hard decisions. And you can start building great relationships and investing in people to help them be successful. You can do it today. Uh, and if you work those muscles effectively, by the time you're in a bigger role, you'll be ready. Such gold. I want to go back to the the opening story that you had said where you know your your ex employee got fired from wherever else he was working, and you you cared, you wanted to go in and see what was going on. Like there's, 
I want to highlight here that there's one thing that you just can't compensate for with anything else. And it's just how much you care about the work mm. that you do. And that's, that's very admirable. And, and, and it's really an X factor in, in high performers versus not. And yeah. you absolutely are one of them. And the other thing is that, that a tweetable almost is like, like hit the ground learning. And <laughs> that's a, that hit, that I hit the ground. Like I'm going to, I think I'm going to be saying that the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we'll we'll go to the ends of the earth to see our clients succeed, um, and when they and when they trip up and fail, it's painful and it's personal for us. Um, we we get the privilege of waking up every day thinking about how to leave the world better than we found it, and we and we're in we're in roles and positions to make it happen, right? We can if I if I help a leader who leads ten thousand people be more effective, those ten thousand people's lives get affected by that. Uh, if I help a thought leader who's got a platform of hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, they speak to. Um, I make them stronger. That's my role in the world. So it's a privileged place and we take it seriously. How can I be as sharp as you? As I mean, you're, you're just so sharp as, a, as speaking and talking and articulating. And then when you write as well, I mean, when people read your work, I mean, it's quite evident there as well. Do you, are you a reader? Are you... What are some of the things that you that you? What are some of the sharpening tools that you use? Uh, well, so first of all, I think you're underselling yourself. I think you're super sharp. Um, I think you're you're. I think and I and I. My heart goes out to you because my guess is that you are wise beyond your years uh, in many ways, and that's a curse, right? Because you get sometimes the world punishes you for that, and so sometimes I, that's right. I, I do hope that you know as you catch up to your wisdom you'll begin to feel your agency in the world, you know, amplify because it's clearly you want to make a difference. You know, you want people to grow and, ha- and, w- and have a mindset of growth and you're, you, and you're clearly modeling for people because you're curious about your own development. So cheers to you for that. Well, thank you. I think, um, you know, I think pay attention. Uh, you know, I mean, learn to love language. I mean, one of the things that sucks about human relationships is that the way we convey things is with words. Wouldn't it be cool if it was pictures? Or like Legos, Legos, <laughs> yeah. or something else. The fact that we have to have it has to be words. Um, it just sucks, uh, and, and especially when you add to the fact English words, because we, our language is not user friendly. Um, so, so pay attention to patterns. I would say to people, look, look, make connections. There are, you know, in a world of AI, in a world of blockchain, in a world of uh, machine learning, dots are going to come at you faster. Um, and it's no longer having information that makes you powerful, but you, it's your interpretation of the information, the insight, the perspective that you noticed a pattern in my work of caring, right? You pick up on it, you, you put it out there. That's great pattern recognition, right? So learn to connect the dots and learn to speak the dots because that's helpful to people and people will be grateful to see, uh, don't ever assume the obvious is obvious to anybody. Uh, in, in a world of being barraged with a lot of stuff, you, you, you're probably too young to remember this, but we used to have these things called uh, pixelgrams, where you'd stare at this poster of just a bunch of dots, and you have to squint. And eventually, <laughs> if you squinted enough, there was a picture. And I think we all live our lives like that, with 3D pixelgrams, looking at a bunch of dots, and so, just dying for someone to help us see the picture. And if you can be the person that connects the dots for people, that's a great way to sharpen your eye. Uh, and if you can sharpen your eye, you'll sharpen your voice. This, um, this, this is, oh my gosh. Continue, continue, please. Uh, well, the second one is sharpen your ears. Right? So listen, pay attention to what you're hearing. Pay attention to people's pain. People are suffering. They're struggling. People are walking around with deep senses of imposter syndrome, deep senses of inadequacy, deep senses of fearing obsolescence. Um, and the, the narratives in their head belie who they are. And sometimes those narratives can be really destructive. Um, and if you can say to somebody, you know, that's the third time in our conversation, you've belittled your own work. I hope you'll, I hope one day you'll learn to stop doing that because your work is really good. Um, and put a little fire in someone's belly that they're, they're draining out. Or even to say, you know, I, 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 I hear a lot of second guessing of yourself in here. I, I love for you to, to wonder about that more mm. because sometimes holding up that mirror of those dots you connect and hearing the pain behind those dots, you can, you can set somebody's story in a very new chapter just by, by one conversation. Uh, so if you want to be sharp, it doesn't start with your mouth. It starts with your eyes and your ears. 
How insightful. I mean, Ron, I've interviewed a lot of people. You are you are impressive. You're you're <laughs> up you're up there with I mean, this is I just love like this is one of those ones and I say this like every now and then I've probably said it two or three times on the show. Like this is going to be one of those interviews where like I go and listen back and replay it like three or four times. <laughs> it's just like this this segment right here. That's I love it, Ron. Thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, it's fun to be with you. Yeah. So uh, more more recently, I love talking about education, and uh, you had written very eloquently about education last mm-hmm. month and about the the scandal that went on that that happened. And I'm just so curious. Do you th- do you think that th- you you would You'd had many, many assertions in there and many um, with, with it's, I don't want to speak, put words in your mouth at all, but do you think that schools are preparing kids to, to be um, efficient workers in the, and, and, and be well in the workplace and perform well? Uh, not even close. The, the mark, the mark is so far, it's almost terrifying. So that article, thank, by the way, I, saw, I noticed you shared it this morning on Facebook. Thank you for that. Yes. Um, everyone needs to read. I'm, I'm putting it I'm putting it in the show notes. Again, look up, go to the go to jordanparis.com, Ron Carucci, and the search in the top right. It's just, it, it's, it needs to be, it's great. I love it. Well, thank you. And that, so that's, that article does, one, it features my research on honesty. So the, thing, the study I mentioned before, that's the research there. But two, the one thing I don't get to say in that article uh, you might, you, if you watch the second Ted talk on influence, um, uh, I, uh, I get to tell the story of my mentor, the woman who is, has been my, for 30 years, the woman who has been my champion and right. has, has made me sharper. That's who I interview in that article. Uh, so that was especially, Oh, okay. So if, yeah, so if you she's watch the second, yeah, she's amazing. You know, she's, uh, she's almost 80 years old, you know, still the energy of a 50 year old. She just got a real estate license at 79, just because, um, but has been in higher ed for 40 years. And so she's, she has seen the underbelly and the barnacles on it. Um, I taught in grad school for 17 years. Um, it is astounding to me how many people are still coming out unprepared for the world, for adulthood. If you want to put a, a link to a book that's a scary book about this subject yeah. um, a, by my dear friend, Jonathan Haidt, um, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it is about, it's scarily about your peer group, Jordan, um, and how ill-prepared we have made you for the workforce by telling you three horrible lies. We've told you that what doesn't, ma- what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. We've told you the world is good and evil. We've given you these really bad ideas about how life actually works, and we've coddled you to the place where you're not resilient, you're not ready, you're not able to think for yourselves, you're not, you can't problem solve. Um, we've taught you that social media is a place to actually express yourself. Um, rather than temper yourself, so mm. it's 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 it is profoundly deep research on people born born between 1994 and beyond, and how how anxiety and depression levels, suicide levels, um, social uh, social anxiety disorders, the, the amount of mental health challenges, much less professional and vocational angst, your peers have. Because of how, what a bad job we as parents and we as a generation, but our schools have done to teach you what it means to, to be a good human being, uh, much less a, a good contributor in the workplace. It's, it, it, honestly, I think borders on criminal. I think it really does. Um, I, I, all the time. I say it too. It's criminal. And, yeah. and so, sure, the parents that, that bribe their kids, yeah, they suck. They should go to jail. But my point in that article is we can't let the schools off the hook. It was happening under their noses. You know, we've been putting names on buildings for years and calling it, you know, philanthropy. Uh, our schools need to wake up. And Toby's great point was it's an acro- higher as an anachronism. It's going to be gone. Uh, and, you know, one, you know, today people see, you know, the online schools, you know, SNHU or University of Phoenix or whatever, and they sort of sneer and look down their nose. Those, you know what? Those are really going to be worth gold. Um, and, and corporations are now going to places like that and saying, you know what, they're, they're no help. So can you build me a curriculum that can train my workforce? 
you know, look what Delta did in, in Michigan, right? Delta went to Michigan, sort of went to a, a small college and said, can you train our technologists? We'll pay for it. You build the curriculum. You give them the degree. They said, sure. So Delta moved into Michigan, right? Because they had nobody to fix their airplanes. Yeah, and these are not like blue collar jobs. These are sophisticated technology jobs. And so if the more the schools continue to marginalize themselves and, and try and keep up their elite front, the more the workplace is going to say, we're going to go somewhere else. And, and we're going to, I long for the day when we finally stop saying that a, a, um, a credential, like a bachelor's degree is required for a job. Thank you. It's, I mean, come on. It's, it's so time. We got, we got to move on. It, it, there's zero, zero data that that suggests that uh, having an undergraduate degree can predict success in the workplace, much less a graduate. Now, a graduate degree may be slightly different, right? A master's degree should be more of a professional degree, uh, more of a, a training degree. It should prepare you for a career. So presumably some of the knowledge you get from that, even though having taught grad school, I see sometimes how little MBA, certainly MBA students are prepared for business. But still, uh, they're slightly better than the undergrad, but the undergraduate degree is, I mean, I, I walk into an undergrad classroom. I think I'm just, I'm, this is like a station of high school now. Uh, right. it's just nothing different about it. There's nothing different about the learning professors are not particularly dialed in. Um, so it's, uh, it, it is a crumbling empire. And frankly, if it's not going to fix itself, then crumble faster and get, get out of our way. Cause we have people to train. I want, so the tweetable there is build a life, not a resume. Yeah. You know, so, and I, and I wholeheartedly believe in that. I say it all the time. I think it all the time. There's also, I want to go back to the, the did, online. Let me just ask you, mm -hmm. did you read, if you haven't, you're going to love it. Did you read Peggy Noonan's uh, Wall Street Journal expose about the scandal? I've not actually. Oh my gosh. It, 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 <laughs> it, 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 she could have started out Dear Jordan. Because um, it, <laughs> it is just for you. Go Google it. Peggy what, Noonan. Say it, say it again. I think her name is Peggy Noonan. Uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, yeah, it's called Kids Don't Become Success Robots. Mm. Kids Don't Become Success Robots. Uh, she she talks about that. She, 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 I mean, she really goes to town on this scandal. You're going to love it. And she says, Tennessee, she highlights Tennessee Tech as a school. She goes, it's a, a fabulous school of great people and nobody breaks the law to get in. She's like, <laughs> you know, she, and she said, the, the, the tweetable, you're going to love it. She says, don't, don't go because the whole point was you know go get into the better schools you have better networks. She's like, don't go to school to network. Go make friends. Yeah. yeah. Well, I that, that's what I wanted to talk about because I don't here here's why I don't think online education, online learning is the end all be all answer because the only good thing that I've gotten from from going to school, the only good thing. This is it. Nothing else, because we're because as you had mentioned in the article, the the material and syllabi are decades old. It's it, utterly outdated. It's it's awful. We're not learning things at work today. I talk about this all the time. So I'm preaching to the choir, the listeners here. But um, where I, I don't think it's the answer online learning because the only thing I've gotten is the relationships that I've formed there. Yeah, the the and, meaningful relationships. I I don't know that I would have matured without them, uh, and I don't know that I'd be fulfilled without them. And and university, a brick and mortar university, providing a common place for for people my age to congregate mm -hmm. has was really invaluable. I, I I do not disagree with you at all from a social development point of view, from a emotional health development point of view, from a a relational health point of view, it is fabulous for that. And you're right. Being remotely in a virtual setting doesn't give you that. So yeah. let's figure out a way to get the training from the online schools doing practical applied training. And let's figure out a way to gather your peers to learn how to be good social citizens and contributors to the world in a different place. Because um, you both are equally important, but clearly um, my get. So you, you may be the exception to the rule, Jordan, and good for you for getting out there to make it happen. My son, uh, you know, uh, if, I mean, I, and I, and I read the research on this. Most freshmen and sophomores are having the loneliest years of their life. They sit in their dorm rooms uh -huh. and complaining about being lonely and isolated, and having no friends. And I'm like, but look at go, look at the quad. There's eight thousand posters about inviting you to gatherings, whatever. And if you look at the research on suicide rates of, of freshmen and uh, sophomore kids, they're they're dying of loneliness. Because they don't know how mm. they don't know how to make friends. 
And so I agree that a brick and mortar university is a great place for the opportunity to build that social fabric in your life, but it doesn't mean everybody's taking the opportunity to do it. That's so right. You, universities have to do a much better job to encourage and help people understand why those opportunities are there. Because I know, you know, the, the, there are good-minded people in student services organizations very frustrated that they're trying to do everything they can to host welcomes and gatherings and getting people to and, – and, and people don't come, right? So yeah, they're, they're frustrated right. by that. And so it's a two-way street on that one. But good for you for putting yourself out there. I'm, I, I'm detecting a little bit of an extrovert in you. Um, but for the, for the introverts among us, uh, I'm one of them, um, it's a little bit harder for us to, to make our way out to that quad and shake a hand and say hello. Um, and it's, uh, um, you know, you can be alone in a crowd and it's very painful. Well, imagine if you had a top-down view, like imagine a, a dormitory and the roof is taken off and you had a top-down view. You just see a bunch of kids in bed, laying in bed on their phone, probably me yeah. and they're literally feet apart from me, from each other. Just, it's just, it's crazy. And I mean, Hey, I mean, uh, we all, you know, uh, all pretty much all people, my age, myself included struggle from, uh, uh with being attached to this thing oh, sure. way too much, but, uh, well, and, and, and sorry to get to the dark, the dark side of that, but there's a lot of dissociative problems with that. Right? So you have, I mean, porn addiction is at an all time high. Really? You know, oh my gosh. You're, you're, you're uh, sadly because, it, because of its ubiquity, yeah. your generation has one of the highest porn addiction rates in the world. Uh, uh, and then you have alcohol and drugs and all kinds of other things um, and hookup apps and all kinds of ways that device takes you to doc to self-medication and to self-soothing choices that are not healthy. Right. And away from relationship and away from the real thing of, of, of other human beings. So uh, but you know what? Shame on us as a generation for not teaching you to be moderate with that and, and, and limiting your screen time and telling you no and getting you off of social media. We, when we gave your peer group Facebook, we gave you brass knuckles. It should be, a, I'm tired, but it should, and this is what John says in his book, Colleague of the American Mind. We should make Facebook illegal till you're 17 years old. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, my uh, my we, sister, now she's not on Facebook, but I think she's been on Instagram since... She's had an iPhone and been on Instagram since like nine, ten. Not good. I had a I had a flip phone at ten, and I what was I? Who was I texting? Number one, number two. I think I was I was probably sending a, like two or three texts per week. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. No, we 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 gave them brass knuckles to to. I mean, and and it's they're cruel and girls especially in John's study. You'll see girls are suffering even more than guys. Uh and. So, you know, we've, we've, we've not prepared you well to understand what that device is, what the platforms on it should do and what they should not do. Right. And so you've had, you've had a fend for yourself uh, and shame on us for that. What's the, what is the study? I'd like to write it down if I didn't already. Uh, in John, in Colleen American Mind. John's oh, Jonathan. Book. Yes. Yep. Okay. So I did, I did write that down and, yep. and that'll, that'll of course be in the show notes as well. So Ron, this has been an amazing conversation. Where can people connect with you online? So uh, Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com is a place to come out. We got lots of great content. If you like to, we got videos. We have uh, a free ebook. Uh, if you want to read more about how we, how we, our playbook on change, we've got great blogs. We have a quarterly magazine you can have for free. Come sign up for that. So lots of great content there. Uh, come hang out and visit. And if you want to uh, follow me on Twitter at Ron Carucci or on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Fantastic. I will make sure that is all linked up. Ron, I, this is some of my favorite stuff to talk about. I really, I mean, the first half of the conversation, I mean, the first three quarters of the conversation, I absolutely loved it as well. But talking about education is mm -hmm. my absolute favorite thing to do because I I won't rest my message and I won't rest my efforts until either I fix it or someone fixes it pretty much until it's fixed. So I love it. And you, I have to acknowledge you because as I'd mentioned, you're incredibly sharp and you've, you have designed your life in around things that you really care about. And so, and it's just, it, it exudes in everything you say and do the, the, the cliche word passion, so to say, but you just, you just care. You really yeah. care. And it, I absolutely love that. And I think it's a, it's fantastic service that people 
can see that and, and hear that from you and know that they can find something that they really care about as much as you do. So thank you, Ron. Well, Jordan, my pleasure. Thanks for all you're doing to help uh, make the world a better place than universities. Keep up the good work. We're cheering you on and uh, great to chat with you. Of course. So my final question is, uh, this is always my final question. And it is, if you could design, hmm, wow, I've never messed up the final question. <laughs> I had a brain fart. Um, okay. If you could create a course, if you could teach a course at a university, a course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? We've talked about a lot of lessons today. If you were to, and I know you've taught at a university before, but if you had 100% free reign, what would it be? Uh, oh gosh, I love it. Uh, empathy, how to learn, how to become an empathic human being. Ron Carucci, you are the man. Thank you very much. Jordan, great to be with you. You're doing great work in the world. Thanks. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of the Growth Mindset University podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick five-star rating in iTunes. All you have to do is grab your iPhone or iPad, open up the Apple Podcast app, hit the search tab, search the show Growth Mindset University, or just search my name, Jordan Paris, tap the show, scroll all the way to the bottom, and then just hit that fifth star, and that helps us tremendously in ways that you could never even imagine. It means the absolute world to me when people do this. I would be eternally grateful if you do that. We're pushing 100 ratings right now, and it's really making a difference for this show. And of course, if you've not already subscribed to the show, just make sure you do that wherever you're listening to so that you don't miss that next episode. I know you're not going to want to miss it. And you only heard this episode today because I thought it was valuable enough to post here. So if you want to share that value with your friends, your family, go ahead and do that. Share this episode with them. Take a screenshot, send it to them. Take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram story and tag me at J underscore Paris underscore so that I know you're listening and I can get back to you and put a face to the name. Now, if you're ready to really take your life to the next level, my book is on Amazon. It is also called Growth Mindset University. It's all about how to learn anything, how to take control of your life, and how to fulfill your vision of success. And you're not just supporting me and this channel by getting this book, but you're also getting this awesome book that's going to lay out the rules and principles to design your life full of joy and fulfillment. All right. I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn, and grow to give.